0: This is Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society, on the web at myfloridahistory.org. I'm Ben Brokemarkle and coming up on the program, we'll climb to the top of Florida's tallest lighthouse at the
1: Ponce Inlet Lighthouse and Museum. The area around the lighthouse has changed so much from the pictures we have of years ago where there was no building at all. We'll
0: discuss a map of Cedar Key from the 1800s, for historic archaeologists who are
2: trying to piece together what this place looked like, they could look at a document like this and it could certainly aid them in kind of pulling that all together.
0: And drive in theaters that were popular in the mid 20th century are making a comeback in the age of COVID 19. All that ahead on Florida Frontiers.
3: I'm on the top of the world.
0: Since you've been around, you almost put me at
3: the
1: top of the world. We have to talk them down. Some people come down backwards on the stairway. Some come down on the seat of their pants, all the way down the 203 steps. It's quite a sight to see.
0: Bob Callister is programs manager at the Ponce Inlet Light Station.
1: But most people really, really, really enjoy once they get up to the top and and feel the uh, the cool air and the and see the beautiful view, they get a much better idea as far as what life was like back 125 years ago, or even today for that matter. Uh, The uh, the area around the lighthouse has changed so much from the pictures we have of years ago, um, where there was no building at all. The light station at Ponce de Leon Inlet,
0: popularly known as Ponce Inlet, is home to a red brick lighthouse that is 175 feet tall. From the top of the Ponce Inlet lighthouse, you get a spectacular view of the Atlantic Ocean, Ponce Inlet, the Halifax River running north, and the Indian River running south. On a clear day, you can see all the way to Cape Canaveral from this lighthouse just south of Daytona Beach. As Bob Callister explains, the Ponce Inlet lighthouse was completed
1: in 1887. It's the tallest lighthouse in Florida. Uh, it's probably the most complete, restored light station in the United States. Uh, we have had a lot of people here over the years that have commented how how beautifully the buildings are restored, how beautiful the grounds are kept, and that wasn't by any accident. They, the Preservation Association was formed in 1972, and uh, has put a lot of blood, sweat, and tears into making this the way it is today.
0: The Ponce Inlet Light Station was named a National Historic Landmark in 1998. There are eight original 1887 buildings at the light station, including the lighthouse. Three lighthouse keepers' houses are now home to exhibits and displays focusing on local history and demonstrating what life was like in Florida in the 1800s. John Mann is a tour guide at the Ponce Inlet Light Station. He tells us that the first lighthouse keeper here was a Russian immigrant named William Rolinsky. Rolinsky was a
4: Confederate uh, war veteran, and I always found that to be fascinating because uh, usually after uh, the uh, uh, war between the states, that uh, Union veterans were appointed. Uh, We have no idea what um, Mr. Rolinsky's... uh, Uh, connections were uh, with the federal government, uh, but uh, I always found that to be uh, very, very interesting and very unique. Yeah, but he was actually the uh, first keeper, the first principal keeper. He had two assistant uh, keepers, and he is credited with lighting the light uh, the first time, November 1st, 1887.
0: When the Ponce Inlet Lighthouse was put into operation in 1887, its beam of light could be seen 20 miles out to sea. As John Mann and Bob Callister explain, when William Rolinski left the Ponce Inlet Lighthouse in 1893, his successor was an Irishman named Thomas Patrick O'Hagan.
4: Mr. O'Hagan is probably responsible for more lighthouse keepers in the state of Florida than any other individual. I I believe at last count, uh, Mr. O'Hagan had 11 children, Uh, many of his sons, I think three became keepers themselves uh, probably by serving unofficial apprenticeships uh with his uh, uh with their father and uh actually uh one of uh, mr o'Hagan's relatives, i believe his granddaughter is now the head of the Amelia Island lighthouse foundation up uh fernandina beach amelia island uh and she indeed was born at Amelia Island Light Station. I think he was the keeper. I think his son there was the assistant keeper when she was born. She and her husband run the foundation, do tours up at Amelia Island. Yeah, fascinating story.
1: We also know that one of his sons was the, um, was the relief keeper here at the Ponce Inlet Lighthouse uh, after the, uh, the uh, tower was electrified in 1933. And they were cutting back because they didn't need as many keepers with the electricity. And uh, he was uh, assigned here as one of the relief keepers uh, during that period of time. We don't know how long he was here, but he was here for a short period of time at least.
4: You will find the O'Hagan name uh, at St. Augustine. <clears throat> You'll find the O'Hagan name as uh, on the list of keepers at uh, Cape Canaveral. I believe, also at Jupiter. So it's a fascinating family, a a real lighthouse uh, service family.
0: It was during Thomas Patrick O'Hagan's tenure as principal lighthouse keeper that a ship called the Commodore sunk off of Daytona Beach in 1897. One of the passengers on the Commodore was author Stephen Crane, best known for his novel The Red Badge of Courage. Crane wrote an article about his experience of being shipwrecked, and it also inspired his short story The Open Boat. John Mann.
4: Mr. O'Hagan never actually met Mr. Crane because, of course, Mr. Crane and his infamous dinghy uh, wrecked about uh, nine miles north of the lighthouse itself. But uh, the morning prior to Mr. Crane coming ashore, ingloriously as that was with the, uh, with the dinghy uh, uh, going over in the, uh, in the breakers, uh, the first boatload of survivors from the uh, Commodore, uh did come ashore here about a, a mile north of here uh twelve uh Cuban uh rep uh rebels actually they were part of the uh the insurrection uh, uh in uh, uh in Cuba at that time and they uh, walked to the lighthouse um, they were given aid by Keeper O'Hagan and uh the other assistant keepers and, and keeper O'Hagan's uh family uh went to New Smyrna caught the train back to Jacksonville and never told anyone else because of the clandestine nature of uh, their activity uh, that there were other people in lifeboats out there. Uh, Second load of uh, 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 Cuban uh, rebels uh, landed about three miles north of the first boatload and they indeed uh, never uh, told anyone that Crane uh... the captain the oiler and the cook were still out there uh... in the water
0: john mann often portrays edward murphy the captain of the commodore for students and tour groups one of the newer buildings at the Ponce inlet light station is the lens exhibit building which houses a collection of restored lighthouse
1: lenses bob callister before the light was electrified they used kerosene to light the lamp Uh, this lighthouse was built after the days of whale oil being used, and uh, kerosene was first used in the Civil War, I believe. And, um, but in 1887, they used that was the, uh, the fuel of choice, so to speak, of the lighthouse service, and they built the, uh, this particular lighthouse in order to use a, a first-order Fresnel lens, which is essentially the biggest of the six orders of Fresnel lenses, Um, they had a a five-concentric wick uh, lantern, kerosene lantern, which we have on display over in the Lens Museum. And um, they would light that every night. They used five gallons of kerosene that they had to carry up, weighed about 40 pounds. They had to carry that kerosene up the steps, all 203 steps, in order to... um, to have enough fuel on hand to keep the light lit all night it's very very important that the light be lit all night now because we had or I should say the pontend lighthouse had a fixed lens there was no rotation necessary therefore there was no clockwork necessary to keep the lens going around and around as the cape canaveral lighthouse did uh, before it was electrified in 1931,
4: yeah, fixed lenses, uh, Mr. Callister uh, r- refers to it means that um, its signal at night was a steady beam of light, which uh, translated six miles out would be a a single beam of white light, an intense beam of of white light. Uh, characteristics uh, of uh, nighttime characteristics are flashes or a fixed lens uh, this our first first order lens the 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 initial lens before electrification uh... was probably removed uh... at the complaint of uh, some ships captains who began to have trouble discerning the lighthouse light from lights along the beach perhaps in some of the hotels the early hotels that were being built which were all lit and perhaps we're confusing the uh, captains. United States Lighthouse Service uh, used a a, a replacement lens here that they had up at uh, Sapelo Island in Georgia. Uh, They had uh, closed that uh, station down, and uh, it is indeed a flashing lens. It is the same one that we have up top right now.
0: Well, we're up here at a a part of the lighthouse where the the public doesn't usually have access. Uh, Explain where we are.
1: We are in the lantern room of the Ponce in Lighthouse. We're looking at the third-order lens that was uh, installed in 2004, originally installed in 1933, when the tower was electrified.
0: Now, there's a spectacular view from up here. Uh, You were telling me about a a racetrack that uh, used to be on the beach and uh, uh, used to come around here. Tell me a little bit about that.
1: Yeah, the racetrack was actually... Uh, within an easy di- uh, sighting of, of where we are right now, there's a condominium complex of uh, three, uh, three uh, units on the, the south turn. It's uh, called Beach Street, and uh, that's where the south turn of the racetrack was, and they would race up the beach, north up the beach, and at the north turn restaurant was where the north turn of the, of the racetrack was, and then they would race down south on the McAdam Road, to the south turn, and that's that was the, uh, the, the, uh, the whole racetrack. That was in the days before NASCAR. Uh, NASCAR track was built in 1959. The last race was held on the beach in 1958. Well, it's a spectacular view up here, but it's a lot cooler just down below where the public can uh, reside. I guess we can go back down there and look around, too. Sounds like a good idea. It's supposed to be 97 up here right now, but I think it's more like 107. <laughs> I think you're right.
0: Until 1929, the Ponce de Leon Inlet was known as Mosquito Inlet, but the new name was deemed more attractive for potential residents. In 1939, the Coast Guard took over operation of the lighthouse, and in 1970, it was decommissioned. In 1980, though, the lighthouse was relit, bringing many more
1: visitors to the historic site. So from 1980 until the present day, the lighthouse has been relit. It currently has its, uh, the original 1933 third order lens in it. That was uh, taken down probably in the 1970s, early 1970s, was put in storage someplace, was reacquired by the Preservation Association and restored and reinstalled in the lighthouse in 2004. And at that time, the Coast Guard bid a fond adieu to the Ponsonet Lighthouse, and uh, turn the uh, the maintenance of the tower over to the maintenance department here on at the um, at the Ponsonet Lighthouse. So we are now a privately owned aid to navigation. Uh, I'm sure there's many, many more in the United States, but that makes us uh, very proud to to know that we jumped through enough hoops to, that the Coast Guard allowed us to maintain the light and it is still an active aid to navigation even today. Today, the Ponce Inlet Lighthouse and Museum is also a valuable
0: educational resource. Several thousand students visit the lighthouse annually and classroom outreach programs reach thousands more. In this summer of COVID-19, the lighthouse is open daily from 10 a.m. to 7 p.m. with the last admission at 6 p.m. Masks and social distancing are mandatory at the Ponce Inlet Lighthouse and Museum. can find is the love that I've found ever since you've been around. Your love's put me at the top of the
1: world.
0: This is Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society. I'm Ben Broatmarkle. Visit us anytime on the web at myfloridahistory.org to find discounted books on Florida history and culture, listen to archived editions of this program, watch our television series, Florida Frontiers, subscribe to our journal, the Florida Historical Quarterly, and much more. That's myfloridahistory.org. Joining us now is Ben DiBiase, Director of Educational Resources for the Florida Historical Society and archivist at the Library of Florida History in Cocoa. Ben, Cedar Key is a small island on Florida's Gulf Coast that has a long history, right? Yeah, that's right, Ben. And a lot of people, a lot of
2: Floridians, have probably never even heard of Cedar Key. But in the 19th century, it was fairly well known, not only in Florida, but throughout the southeast. It was a major port town through most of the 19th century, from about the 1850s until about 1900. Anybody who lived in Florida had probably at least heard of it or maybe even visited Cedar Key. And Cedar Key is actually part of a series of small islands known as the Cedar Keys. And as one might guess, the name comes from the cedar tree. It's actually the eastern red cedar, which is commonly found, the variety of eastern red cedar that grows along the Gulf is commonly found around these keys. And it was actually harvested. That was one of the major industries in and around the marshland areas was the the harvesting of these small cedar trees for the production of pencils, actually in the uh, 1880s and 1890s. It was a major industry. In fact, the Cedar Key had several mills at that time that were dedicated just to processing the cedar tree for the manufacture of pencils. But human habitation dates back at least a few thousand years. There are several very well-known archaeological sites in and around the key, so we know that human beings had been there for quite a while. And the keys themselves actually show up as early as the 1540s on Spanish maps. And in the last few decades of the 18th century, a man named William Augustus Bowles made the Cedar Keys area very famous again. Now, he was the self-proclaimed leader of the Muscogee Nation, and he was a kind of a thorn in the side of the Spanish during the Second Spanish Period. And he actually set up a watchtower there and would smuggle in goods during the period of the 1790s up through the latter part of the Second Spanish Period. And then actually during the First Seminole War, there were two British subjects who were smuggling goods into to help Seminole Indians fight the Americans during that time period. So Cedar Key really started very early on as a port town. It wasn't until statehood, till 1845 in the 1850s, that it really grew in, in size and, and became a very important industrial area. And that was really due to the construction of the Florida Railroad that stretched from Fernandina on Florida's northeast coast all the way across the state to Cedar Key. It opened in 1860, and the first rail line. The first train, rather, actually crossed Cedar Key
0: literally weeks before the beginning of the Civil War, so it was bad timing. (laughs) Ben, you've pulled a map from the Florida Historical Society collection that shows Cedar Key during its 19th century prime. Yeah, that's right. So what we're looking at is a bird's-eye view map of Cedar
2: Key in Levy County from 1884, and this is actually a lithograph. These were fairly common at this time period, and a bird's-eye view map is essentially a view of a town or city that's about 800 to 1,000 feet up, as if one were a bird looking down on the town. What's incredible about these is all of the detail. And the artist goes to great pains to create these very realistic-looking buildings. In fact, you can see here there's a key that shows where the custom house is, the Episcopal Church, here's the public school, several of the mills that I talked about. And you'll notice all of these little buildings have a plume of smoke that's showing this industry, and there's all kinds of activity. The harbor is filled with ships. And here's that rail line. Here's a Florida railroad that actually goes out to a wharf into uh, past the Cedar Key town. You can see actually how the town is platted out. You can even see orange groves. Here's a little horse-drawn carriage There's some cows out in the marsh. I mean, it's really a fascinating piece of artwork, but it's interesting too for historians because we can piece together often where now these buildings are gone, but we can piece together where these structures once stood. So for archaeologists and for historic archaeologists who are trying to piece together what this place looked like during its heyday, as you pointed out in the 1880s, 1890s, they could look at a document like this and it could certainly aid them in kind of pulling that all together.
0: So what would a visitor to Cedar Key find today? Well, Cedar Key is unique, especially along the Gulf Coast. It didn't
2: really fall prey to a lot of the mid-20th century hyper development in terms of tourism traffic. So you don't have the motels, you don't have the golf courses and things that you would see in places like Panama City Beach and and those places. But unfortunately, the story of Cedar Key kind of took a sharp left turn in the 1880s. When Henry Plant actually built his railroad, he went to Tampa rather than Cedar Key. So Tampa really became the major shipping hub along Florida's Gulf Coast, and Cedar Key just sort of faded. That was really the first blow. And then in the 1890s, there was a hurricane that blew through the town and essentially wiped most of the structures just off the map, the city was gone. There was a serious economic downturn. Fishing became a big industry after that, but then they fished out the entire area. So for much of the 20th century, it just existed as a sleepy fishing town. And there were a few local residents, less than 1,000 people for most of the 20th century. So very, very small. But what happened is that it retained a lot of that old Florida charm. So a lot of people today that flock to a city like Cedar Key, they're looking for that slow pace. In fact, there was a 2018 article in the Miami Harold that said, quote, the pace is so slow, the tide may not even bother coming in, unquote. There are no beaches. People don't go there for the beach. They go there essentially to unwind. It's only about two hours from Tampa, an hour from Gainesville, two hours from Orlando. So people kind of get out of the urban areas. And they head essentially back in time. And they try, you know, it's sort of ironic, but they're trying to to recapture and, and understand what that time period was like back in the 19th century. In fact, the entire town itself is on the National Register as a historic and archaeological, very important site. So it's designated as an historic and archaeological district. It's certainly worth a visit. It's off the beaten path. It's sort of off of Florida's interstates and is worth visiting if you're ever on the Gulf Coast of Florida.
0: Thanks, Ben. Sure. Thank you. Ben DiBiase is Director of Educational Resources for the Florida Historical Society and Archivist at the Library of Florida History in Cocoa. To see the map of Cedar Key that we've been talking about, check out our web extras at myfloridahistory.org. This is Florida Frontiers. Drive-in theaters were very popular in the mid-20th century. In this era of COVID-19, many people are seeing drive-in theaters as a safer form of entertainment than others. Some of the Florida drive-in theaters currently showing films include The Silver Moon in Lakeland, the Ocala Drive-In, the Joyland Drive-In Theater in Pasco County, and the Ruskin Family Drive-In in in Ruskin. Holly Baker has this look at Florida drive-in theaters. I particularly
5: love movies, especially science fiction, and I remember seeing The Thing from Another World in 1951 here in Orlando, and it really scared the pants off of me.
3: That was Irv Lipscomb, lifelong resident of Winter Garden, Florida, and movie theater history enthusiast. He recently wrote a book titled Flickers, Fires, and Dreams The Story of Winter Garden's Theaters. Irv Lipscomb sat down with me to talk about the history of drive in movie theaters in Florida. Even though drive-ins were introduced in 1933, watching movies on large screens from the comfort of one's automobile did not become popular until after World War II. Drive-ins reached their height of popularity in the 1950s and 1960s as American car culture emerged. With the introduction of new highway systems and increased leisure time, Americans spent more time in their cars than ever before. Irv Lipscomb has more about drive-ins during that time.
5: At its height, there were approximately 4,000 drive-ins operating, but uh, some people labeled them as immoral because there was quite a bit of privacy in your own car, you know, and because of that, they kind of got the nickname that they were Passion Pits. Parents liked them, though, because they could take their kids with them and not have to hire a sitter. They never charged for the kids. The kids 12 and under were always free, so that was a big drawing point also.
3: Like many Americans of his generation, Irv Lipscomb spent a lot of time at the drive-in. I asked him if he had any memories of going to the drive-in as a child.
5: Oh yes, <laughs> we went to the drive-in a lot. Uh, there were five children in my family and we would uh, pop a huge bag of popcorn before going because my family you know, wasn't that financially solvent and with five kids and everything, it would be expensive to buy all that stuff at the drive-in. So we brought our own We'd bring blankets, and the older three of us would uh, get down on the blankets and enjoy the movie. Before the show started, there was usually a playground up toward the front of the screen, and we, of course, we would go there for swings and sliding boards and all that. My two younger sisters wore pajamas when they went to the drive-in because uh, they would always go to sleep anyway, so that worked for them.
3: With the year-round pleasant weather, Florida was an ideal state for drive-in theaters in 1938. One of America's first drive-in theaters opened in Miami. By the late 1950s, at the peak of drive-in popularity, there were more than 150 drive-in theaters in Florida. Irv Lipscomb recalls some of the drive-ins that used to exist in Central Florida.
5: In Orlando, there were quite a few drive-ins. The ones that I can remember are the Cool Avenue, the Rimar, the Orlando, the Pine Hills, and the South Trail. Oh, plus the Washington Shores. Aldemont Springs had the Prairie Lake. Winter Park had the Winter Park drive-in. Eustace had the Movie Garden, Leesburg had the Crest, Cocoa had Island Beach. There were also drive-ins I remember in Titusville, Melbourne, Kissimmee, and Claremont, but I can't remember the names of them.
3: By the 1970s and 1980s, increased land values and new media, such as color television and the VCR, meant that less people were going to the drive-in. Today, there are only about 300 drive-in theaters left in the United States. There are less than 10 drive-ins in Florida, including the Silver Moon Drive-In in in Lakeland, the Ocala Drive-In in in Ocala, and the largest drive-in in in the United States, the Thunderbird, also known as the Swap Shop Drive-In in in Fort Lauderdale. While drive-in theater going will likely never be as popular as it was in the 1950s and 1960s, friends and families in Florida still go to the drive-in.
0: I
5: mourn the passing of what we used to have. Orlando used to have five theaters downtown. But my dad always told me you could always depend on change as the years go by, and it certainly has proved to be true in theater history.
3: For Florida Frontiers, I'm Holly Baker, Public History Coordinator for the Florida Historical Society and Manager of the Brevard Museum of History and Natural Science in Cocoa.
0: You've been listening to Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society. Please join us right here again next week. Until then, find us anytime on the web at myfloridahistory.org and join the conversation on Facebook. Production assistance for Florida Frontiers comes from Bendy Biassi and Holly Baker. Our web extras are produced by Jerry Klein. The program is edited by John White. Have a great week. I'm Ben Brokmarkle.